1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Monday, the day of the week that we read back some messages from the mailbag. Messages you have sent into our show account, which is, if you've never tried it before, contact at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. If you've got something interesting you want to share, some feedback on an episode, get in touch. Uh, Let's see. Rob, you mind if I start off here with this message from Justina? Go for it. Okay. This is actually a response to a much older episode, uh, our series on the seven-day week and the origins uh, uh, and effects of grouping days into uh, chunks of seven. So Justina writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. I'm about six months behind on my podcast feed. So I just listened to your seven day week episodes. When you started musing about what it would be like to live on two different week lengths simultaneously, like some ancient cultures might have done. I heard the call. I know what it's like. And so do millions of schoolchildren. I was in the first class in my school district to experience the six day cycle. This was back in 1981 to 82, and the idea was new. Instead of having a class schedule that followed Monday to Friday, we now had days A through F. The reasons behind the six-day cycle were twofold. One, it let the different academic classes happen at different times of day, since we all learn best at different times of day. This way, math class wasn't always period one, and your foggy morning brain wouldn't put you behind for the whole year. Number two, it also made sure classes didn't get shorted or skipped due to holidays. If the last day of school before a break was C-Day, the first day back would be a D-Day, regardless of the day of the week. What made the whole experience particularly dual-timeline-ish is the fact that the six-day cycle only applied to our academic classes. Other classes like gym, music, shop, and the like stayed on the old five-day Monday-to-Friday schedule. So we were truly living two different weeks simultaneously. What did it feel like? It felt, well, normal. We had a system, we understood the system, and we just followed the schedule. The fact that we might have English before music one week and math the next wasn't a big deal. I imagine the people in ancient cultures living two different cycles also adapted easily. I suspect that the convergence to a single system had more to do with the times two different types of market days overlapped, causing a personnel shortage, rather than confusion about what day it was by the population. These days, school calendars are totally wild. Take, for example, the schedule for my local high school. Uh, and she includes some links. They are trying to have classes at different times of day in a balanced way, and oh, also balance the lunch times and other variables. It leads to this madness. But the kids, they do it. They understand it. They master it. So I think living both a seven and eight day week would have been a piece of cake. Smiley face. Thanks for making my favorite podcast. All the best. Justina.
1: Oh well, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't even think about academic calendars, but that's that's a wonderful example. All right, this next one comes to us from Kenny. Kenny writes in uh, regarding our episode, or was it an episode or episodes on the paragraph we did series? Yeah, series. Yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to remember. Sometimes it's hard to remember when we have done an episode that was actually a single episode. Uh, A lot of our episodes are multi-part these days. Uh, But anyway, uh, Kenny writes in and says, Dear Rob and Joe, I did not know I would find the invention of the paragraph quite so fascinating. I was even able to answer a pub quiz question on the Pilcrow this week, which was a mighty coincidence given I'd never heard the word before in my life. As per Rob's request, here are some of my favorite opening paragraphs. Some are probably pretty obvious. Uh, so, uh, Kenny cites the Gunslinger opening from, from Stephen King. The man in black fled across the desert and the Gunslinger followed. We heard from multiple people about this one. This is a great uh, opening. Uh, but then uh, here's some other ones that Kenny includes. Uh, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell. Nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. And that is that, of course, is from The Hobbit.
0: That's a great one.
1: Uh, here's one. Uh, th- this is one from a, a book by the name of, uh, by, with the title The Crow Road, by Ian Banks, who's an author. I'm I'm very familiar with, uh, but I have not read this particular book. If I'm remembering correctly. This would be one of the non-sci-fi books because the, like, the culture books and so forth are by Ian Mbanks, And mm. Ian Banks is just his, uh, uh, what he goes by, what he went by uh, for books that were outside of uh, science fictional concerns. Quote, It was the day my grandmother exploded. I sat in the crematorium listening to my Uncle Hamish quietly snoring in harmony to Bach's Mass in B minor and I reflected that it always seemed to be Death. That drew me back to Golanach. I have no idea where that's going, but already (laughs) that sounds pretty intriguing. Grandmothers are exploding. Um, There's music playing. Golanach, this sounds very fascinating as well. Uh, So, yes, uh, that sounds like a good one. That's a good hook. All right, this one is from a work uh, that I'm not familiar with. uh, Patricia McKillop, Riddle of Stars. Quote, Morgan of Head met the High One's harpist one autumn day, when the trade ships docked at Toll for the season's exchange of goods. Oh, that's good! The High One's harpist. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We got in, we got a nice fantasy or sci-fi sounding name there. A uh-huh. couple of names. Uh, yeah, There's a trade ships. Sounds. This is a fantasy novel. Yeah. All right, here's here's one. Um, I'm going to read it, and, and some, some of you may be able to guess the source. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry, and has been widely regarded as a bad move. This is, of course, from Douglas Adams, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. Strong entry. Mm-hmm. And finally, this one. This one's also. This is from a book I'm familiar with. Everything Starts Somewhere, Although Many Physicists Disagree. That is from Terry Pratchett's The Hogfather, which is a a wonderful Christmas read. And they also made a a wonderful uh, TV miniseries or two-part series adaptation of it. It Had David Warner in it. Ah. Played the head of the Guild of Assassins, if I remember correctly.
0: Oh, wow. I don't know this book or this uh, movie or, or adaptation, but yeah, David Warner, I'm there. (laughs)
1: anyway kenny uh, uh says you'll probably be swamped by these so i'll stop there
0: thanks for all you do good picks kenny Um, all right. I think we did a vault episode on sentient swords or swords that talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we got a response from Michaela who writes hi, Robert and Joe. First of all, thank you so much for the work you put into this amazing podcast. I was listening to the vault episode on sentient weapons and it reminded me of a few things. One of them is this sentient shield that I had homebrewed. I think this is a D&D reference, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that, while very useful, it had an annoying personality. <laughs> Thinking <laughs> back, I don't know of any named sentient armor in mythology or in D&D. Magical armor absolutely exists, but not named or sentient in the way weapons tend to be. Perhaps it's harder to ascribe agency to armor, as armor rarely works in unexpected ways that combatants don't directly control. But even then, one might Say it was the armor that moved them, rather than their instinctual reactions, driven by adrenaline in the midst of battle. Any thoughts? Second was one thing that I've been meaning to ask for a while, uh, and it's if you have ever brought something from your research uh, into a homebrew in one of your D and games. I know I've paused uh, many of your shows to jot down some mythical item or cool, weird, real-life place, creature, or thing that might work in a DD and d setting. I'm not sure how I'll fit them all in at this point when I eventually run a game, but I'm very excited to see how players react. Keep up the good work, Michaela.
1: Oh, that's, yeah. So homebrewing, for anyone unfamiliar, this is basically like when you you create something for a game and you can homebrew, you you may be homebrewing the stats of something. Generally, it's about stats. Like if you're you're homebrewing a particular magic, particular magical item or homebrewing a particular creature, that sort of thing.
0: Like you're saying like you create a creature for your D&D campaign that does not exist in the monster manual. Right,
1: yeah, which which is is a rarity, especially now. It's like it, if they if they don't have it in there officially, then somebody's probably homebrewed it over the years. Uh, and there there have been some wonderful like third party publications that have come up with a lot of that stuff. Um, well, I, I guess the, in the fact in the past I have done that sort of thing before, but it becomes um, I don't know. In my experience, like you sometimes risk running into the situation where you have some sort of idea that you're suddenly really excited to introduce into the role-playing, either as a character, uh, as a a player, or as a dungeon master. And you can get so excited about that idea, you kind of forget that this is also ultimately about the communal experience, and maybe everyone Mm -hmm. else doesn't know about this thing, and they're not as excited for it. And so it ultimately (laughs) ends up being something that's mostly just for you. Um, But that being said, of course, there are tons of great ideas in mythology and and in history to draw upon. And uh, yeah, I mean, one can't help but do that a bit if you're doing any kind of creative work uh, uh, within a role-playing scenario, either as a player or as a game master.
0: My favorite one I've heard about was the listener who wrote in to say that they had homebrewed uh, the the psychic mind-devouring giant crabs from Attack of the Crab Monsters oh, yes. by combining attributes of, I think, a kind of base giant crab monster with like some mind flayer kind of dynamics. That's right. That was a good one.
1: All right, this next one comes to us from Troy. Troy writes in and says, hi, Robert, Joe, and Seth. Thanks for r- reviewing *Crawl* in one of your Weird House Cinema episodes. It brought back many memories. As a result of the episode, I shared your podcast with my brother, and he said he liked the episode and will be shopping for a Glaive replica on Etsy. <laughs> All right, well, just be careful. I, you know, the Glaive looks kind of dangerous to handle, so you may- make sure you check on
0: out just how sharp it is. This might be a reaction to the fact that I found Glaive fidget spinners on Etsy. (laughs) That's great.
1: Uh, Anyway, Troy continues. uh, And this is the portion of the email that I referenced in a recent CORE episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, Troy uh, writes and says, Robert, you said that you don't consider swimming fun, but I would say it's only a chore if your performance is below your expectation. I find running around the lake near my house very fun and extremely challenging. I am vision impaired and can usually pick out a pedestrian within about 20 to 30 feet. Beyond that distance, it looks like fog. Since I run typically at around a 820 minute pace that's 8 minute 20 seconds uh pace uh, it is uh, quite a rush trying to avoid collisions i carry my white cane folded up and enjoy saying hi to people that i pass two laps around the lake is roughly seven miles and the run makes me feel accomplished and independent Hmm. that's good like i say there's a lot of a lot of fun is inherently subjective Like I would, uh, you know, me personally, I would say, well, something can, I can make me feel accomplished and independent, but it it can also make me, uh, it can also feel like like work. So it's, like I say, it varies greatly from individual to individual, but I enjoy uh, hearing these alternate takes on it. Uh, Anyway, Troy continues. Troy says, I think a potential topic down the road would be Assistive technology for the blind or disabled in general. I believe you did an episode on prosthetics. My audio screen reader called JAWS enables me to work on the computer literally with my eyes closed. Hmm. This is a great idea for an episode. Yeah, I know we've talked about prosthetics a little bit. I remember talking about like ancient Egyptian... Uh, examples of prosthetics. I believe there is a particular toe that's rather mm-hmm. ancient, ancient. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, we haven't we haven't done a real deep dive
0: into, into even prosthetics. Uh, I don't think, have we? Uh, I mean, I think it. I don't think we've had a dedicated episode about it, but it's like come up in other contexts. Mm-hmm. But one thing we definitely did is uh, we did an invention episode on Braille. Uh, and that's the, right, kind yes. of fascinating and surprising history of uh, of reading system, touch based reading systems. Yeah. So that's a great suggestion. Uh, and Troy's not done making great suggestions because he says,
1: Last, I wanted to give one movie suggestion for you guys to cover. If it has not already been covered, I recommend The Last Dragon from 1983. This movie fits the fun category of Weirdhouse house cinema. The part I love the most is when either character in a fight scene appears to be getting the upper hand, they start emitting a glowing neon color from their teeth. Uh, I tried Googling "letterboxed Weird House Cinema, and was unable to find the list of past movies. If the above film is not in the list, you may want to check it out. Cheers. Okay, well, well. first of all, yes, letterboxed. that's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D. Uh, yeah, if, if you go there, if you look for Weird House, one word, that's that's our account, should come up, and, and we only have one list, and that's the list of the episodes. Um so uh, um, it is there. Uh, so it, uh, my apologies if anybody has uh, had trouble finding it. Um, it's also linked off of the blog at samudamusic Sumutam- dot uh, But in terms of the, the last dragon, yeah, this is one that's been on my radar. In fact, I was telling, I was talking with you about it just a few mm-hmm. weeks back. Um, I, uh, one of the reasons on my radar is because it was one of the films profiled on the CBC Ideas. Uh, episode that dealt with cult movies. Mm-hmm. This is one that they singled out as being a, a cult film. Uh, you know, despite the fact that I, I think I, I don't, if I'm remembering correctly, The Last Dragon wasn't uh, a, a huge financial hit by any means. But it's it's so distinct. It's like a – it is a um, like like a um, a Motown. Um, uh, production like an epic Motown production with martial arts and fantasy and love and great music, and it's it's a little unlike anything else you might expect to find.
0: It looks absolutely magical. I, I haven't seen it, but I would love to. So this is a romantic martial arts musical produced by Barry Gordy, like uh, it's sometimes mm-hmm. called Barry Gordy's Last Dragon. Barry Gordy the uh, the music. Music producer, record executive, known like he he, he was uh, the writer or one of the writers of like "I Want You Back," like classic songs mm-hmm. like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and the the founder of the Motown record label. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it, yeah, it's true Motown production, and uh, you know has a pretty great cast. And uh, yeah, I, I haven't watched it in its entirety yet. Uh, Weirdly enough, William H. Macy is in it. He has like a pit role, (laughs) but he's uh, he's in the cast. Um, But uh, yeah, this one's definitely on the list. It's just kind of, I guess it's kind of week to week what catches our fancy, but I have a feeling we'll get to The Last Dragon at
0: some point here. All right, this next message is from Casey. Casey says, Hi, Robert and Joe. Recently, some of my son's friends introduced him to the world of Dungeons & Dragons, and he was asking me to explain dungeons to him. I realized that I really don't know much about them. From the movies, I've learned that a dungeon is basically a basement of a castle that functions as a jail or torture chamber— or where one might find the occasional potions classroom or Slytherin common room. I thought the history and usage of real dungeons versus their depiction in pop culture might be a good subject for you to cover on your show, in the same vein as your cauldron episodes. My son would also like to suggest that you cover the Beholder or the Gelatinous Cube on a Monster Fact episode. On a different note, I was unfamiliar with the Jallo genre until I heard you talk about it on your show. Uh, Jallo movies are, of course, these uh, kind of uh violent cd mur- italian murder mystery thrillers from the mm-hmm. 70s there's uh, some great uh Jallo highlights or like the the movies of uh Dario Argento like Deep Red and stuff anyway uh Casey continues so uh finding out about the the shallow genre my mind immediately plugged it into the tune of Shallow from A Star Is Born <laughs> oh Casey you have done violence to my brain by by doing this to me uh, so Casey says, I know I regularly find myself singing in the Jallo. In the Jallo. We're far from the Jallos now. Uh, I just thought I'd give you that little earworm on my way out. Thanks for all the wonderful content, Casey. Casey, this is a crime you have committed that you did this to me, that you did this to Robert and Seth, and now you've done it to every listener to this show. Uh, absolutely atrocious.
1: Actually, I'm immune because I've seen neither version of A Star is Born, and I don't think I'm familiar with this song, so.
0: Oh, you know, uh, so this is from the the most recent one, the one with uh, okay. Lady, Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, uh, which, uh. Uh, I saw a couple of years ago. Actually, I, I thought it was great, and this song is indeed—it's great pop melodrama. It's uh, yeah, it'll, it'll get in you. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I didn't see. It looked kind of like it might be a downer, so I skipped. Oh it. yeah, kind of. It kind of is, but it's also—I don't know. It, I thought it was good. Whistler's not in it though, right? No. Oh, he's in the one from the seventies, isn't he? Yeah. It's like yeah. Barbara Streisand and uh, Chris Christopherson, right? Sam Elliott's in the new one though, right? Yes. Yeah, Sam Elliott, okay. I think, plays. Um, bradley cooper's brother maybe is that right I that sounds so. right like yeah it's like he's like a
1: much older brother right yeah it's kind of his sort of his, his manager, like manager or something yeah. yeah
0: but it's yeah it's got great music it's full of emotion it's all that stuff all right it
1: does not have a like a an unknown assailant going around killing
0: people no, with it, their it, hands it, it okay. does not have like a, a needle killer who wears a trench coat and a hat now, of course, there are Jallo musicals, though. <laughs> or at least there's... Really? There's, oh, yeah.
1: Uh, Fulci did one in particular. Um, yeah, there's the 1984 movie Murder Rock, Dancing Death, uh, which, mm. which I have not seen. But, mm. uh, you know, it has uh, uh, Claudio Casanelli's in it. So, you know, that, that, that tells you something. It has music. It has stabbings. Uh, you know, everything you could possibly want out of a Lucio Fulci musical. I I don't even know what to say about that. (laughs) 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 All right. We're going to go ahead and call it right there. But we we thank everybody who wrote in. Uh, for this episode and yeah in general we should remind everyone yeah we we read all the emails that come in Uh, we don't uh, we don't have time to respond to everybody uh, via email we don't have have time to even use all of the the emails on the show but we greatly appreciate all the feedback so keep it coming if you have uh, comments on recent episodes of stuff to blow your mind future episodes of stuff to blow your mind episodes of weird house artifact monster fact other listener mail episodes Uh, all
0: of it is fair game. So write in. We'd love to hear from you. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind Mind is a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming
1: on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule
2: release to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild.